Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. A conversation with Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center and a former Senate staffer. He's been there at times like these. Bill, welcome back. You had already solved the whole debt crisis on our air about three weeks ago. Now that it's actually passed the House, congratulations, by the way. What's your thought on, on the next move here in the Senate and how quickly this might pass? Well, I do think it will pass in the Senate. I think it will have a majority of the majority of, as it did in the in the House last night. As also, I do, do think you'll have at least 35 uh, votes from the Democratic Party. I think it's going to pass. I think what you were just discussing uh, also is the way to work this thing out. We do have emergency spending rules. There is a way to uh, address uh, uh, Senator Graham's concerns. And uh, more importantly, probably I, I would I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't just a Senate resolution that uh, uh, that confirms our support for Ukraine, uh, and that's separate in part because I really don't think there's any way uh, the leaders are going to allow for this an amendment to be enacted on this to send it back to the House because to do so would delay and really put us at risk of, uh, of defaulting next week. I just looked at the daily Treasury statements, and we're down to something like $37 billion. I do know that they have issued today, or are trying to issue today, a, a three-day uh, three uh, bill for $25 billion. So we are, we are at the, as we have discussed previously, we're, we're really down to the last, uh, yeah. uh, last uh, strokes here, I guess is one way to put it. Down to fumes in the gas tank here. Uh, Bill, bring us in the room for the way something like this is handled. Uh, obviously, Senator Graham could have brought this up a little bit earlier. He waited for it to arrive in the Senate. I realize that's the, the timing here. Uh, but what does Mitch McConnell do at a time like this? Megan Scully suggested maybe a deal is made on on making some sort of statement about backing the war in Ukraine, or is there a pet project they're going to approach him with? What happens in the next few hours? Well, I think, first of all, is there going to be a discussion in the back room between McConnell and uh, Senator Graham about uh, procedures here? And the procedures, yeah. as, as, as you've already indicated, is that they could have a supplemental. And I don't think there's anything that's going to preclude in this agreement here any future supplementals. And emergencies, if we have a hurricane, we yeah. had a disaster, there will still be an opportunity to add to the spending that's, that he feels here. But at, at, we did have something called OCO during the the last many years, which was uh, overseas contingency accounts, something along those lines. I think that's possible. But uh, again, I come back. They're not going to. They're not going to want to have an amendment on this bill. Uh, they want to take it as it came over from the House. And I think they can work out a resolution, a Senate resolution, a statement, sense of the Senate um, that uh, might appease uh, uh, Senator Graham at this particular stage, and and that would be enough to uh, get this thing moving. But this is between Mr. Uh, McConnell and Mr. Hmm. Graham at this point. Bring him to the woodshed, maybe the back room. This is how the sausage is made. Bill Hoagland has been there. Any chance this gets done tonight, Bill? No, I don't think so. I think uh, 
I, I, um, I, I wish you were right. I wish it would be noon tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, more likely, it's, it's late tomorrow evening, if not into Saturday morning. Okay, so th- there was a thought that they might really, you know, put the pedal to the metal here, get it done today. Everybody leaves Thursday evening and follows their normal schedule here, but we still have a few things to work out. And is that based on the time uh, that these amendments that are destined to fail yes. uh, will take? Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's a remember the United States Senate really hasn't been playing a big role in these negotiations it's between the House yeah. and the President. Some of right. these members feel like they haven't had an opportunity to talk. And so we will hear from a number of the senators. And as we know, senators like to talk. Um, this is going to take a little while, but to, get, to vent their uh, positions, if you like, uh, either pro or con. And uh, so uh, this is this is their opportunity now. The House's and the President's had his opportunity. Now the Senate mm-hmm. has its opportunity. That's why it's going to take a little bit longer. Uh, I, I just hope they keep an eye on this uh, cash balance at the Treasury because it, it's going to creep up on them pretty fast here. Well, yeah, I mean, so we need to get a vote before the weekend. The president needs to sign it over yes. the weekend. Yes. We yes. come back to reality uh, on Monday, and, uh, and and that's the X date. I mean, it's as simple as that, right? And yes, and then we'll deal with this again in January 25. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there's a vacation for you in between there, too. Bill, thank you uh, for thank being you, uh, a, a reliable voice for us through all of this. Bill Hoagland, the senior VP at the Bipartisan Policy Center right across the street, From us here in the Bloomberg Washington Bureau, I'm Joe Matthew. This is Sound On. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So he's running. Who, you ask? Yeah, we heard about Chris Christie already. That's supposed to come Tuesday of next week. Looking forward to asking Lisa about that. As we reassemble our panel, Lisa Camuso Miller, Republican strategist, and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg politics contributor, Democratic analyst. But there's another I haven't mentioned. The former vice president set to announce his campaign the day after. Mike Pence asked about the story we were just talking about in an interview that's Disney, of course, in Ron DeSantis's war against the corporation. His stand on this. I like Walt Disney, not woke Disney. And uh, I fully support uh, what Florida did in challenging um, a, a, a left-wing agenda for children under third grade. In fact, I'd like to see them expand that in the interest of families in Florida. Uh, but where, where I took issue... Uh, several months ago was I'm as a limited government conservative I'm uh, I, I, I don't believe it's the role of government hmm. to, to then um, essentially go after corporations that differed with them in the political process that's from USA Today I'm really confused now he says he supports Ron DeSantis but not this type of activity Lisa is it possible to thread that needle for Mike Pence I mean, every candidate that's in the race is reinventing themselves over and over and over again, Joe, from my point of view. And I think that everyone is doing it in the uh, in the image of what they think the Republican Party is today. And they're trying to figure that out. And I think that as soon as they figure out what their own authentic um, point of view is, then I think they'll start to resonate with voters. But in the meantime, if they're trying to thread the needle with messaging like that, I don't know, man. I don't think that that's the winning strategy, not from my point of view anyway. Woke Disney, not Walt Disney, Jeannie. At, at least there was a line. 
There was. And, and the two W's, that, that seems to be what he was going after. Um, you know, this is, um, <laughs> this is uh, you know, I think the person who has articulated uh, their position on this from the Republican side, um, most articulately in my mind, is the governor of New Hampshire, Sununu, who has said, you know, I am a small C conservative. And in New Hampshire, we don't try to dictate what corporations do. That's it. And I think to Lisa's point, the challenge Pence has is he never comes out on these things as sounding authentic. He sounds like he's chasing DeSantis, chasing Trump to be woke. You shouldn't chase people. Be who you are. You're a traditional conservative, then be that way. So I think that's going to be the challenge for him. He's trying to figure it out, and he just may. And by the way, Joe, I thought you were also going to mention the governor of North Dakota, who may come out next week, billionaire Doug Burgum. Um, So, you know, I I won't be surprised if you announce next week as well, Joe. It's getting to be a big Big stage out there. Not need to worry about. (laughs) Uh, As we survey the landscape, the latest polls on the race, courtesy the former president in Manchester, New Hampshire. These polls are amazing. So today's very, very uh, important and big Emerson poll came out. So it has Trump at 62 percent, DeSantis at 16, Mike Pence at seven. Hmm. Obviously, people are dreaming of energy independence, a strong military like you had. (laughs) And borders and low taxes that are strong. We want strong borders. We want low taxes. So when you think about these numbers here, and of course the man who uh, is is likely to be on stage as well, Donald Trump, Lisa, this idea of Mike Pence running a campaign, where's, where's the Mike Pence base beyond evangelicals who already seem to be aligned with Donald Trump? Well, I don't think that they're with him. They're with they're with Trump for sure. I mean, you know, I think about that. I I was just before we even got on today, I was thinking about the Pence candidacy and how that's um, how that's going to unfold. I mean, I think that if the president had hadn't sent an army of uh, people to the Capitol to hang the guy, uh, perhaps maybe they might be inclined to be in favor of him. But the whole the narrative, the two of them are so. If you're for Trump, you're not for Pence. And if 66 percent or whatever that number is that Trump just uh, quoted is where his numbers are now in New Hampshire, well, then whatever's left is not also with Mike Pence. They're with DeSantis or just about anybody else. So to me, it feels like uh, an opportunity, I think, also, too, in some ways, Joe, when you are and have served as the vice president, you think in your head, like, I could do that job. I could be the president. And so this is the natural course of things for him. He was once a governor and then he was vice president and now it's his turn to run. Um, But you and I've seen this playbook before. If you presume that it's your turn, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is. How true. Jeannie, is this the best news for Democrats? The more, the merrier. Everybody's eating into Donald Trump here, or at least trying to, but making it very difficult for anyone else to be the nominee. Yeah, I mean, that's what Democrats believe. That's what the Trump campaign believes. Um, That has been traditional wisdom. We have to see how it plays out. I do think that we're hearing in Iowa um, from people on the ground there that there is an appetite for an alternative to Trump because the baggage is adding up by the day. The latest, you know, what came out of New Jersey, this this tape. We may see Jack Smith, you know, share an indictment, Georgia. So we may see voters looking for an alternative 
to Trump, but he believes and Democrats believe the more people get in, the harder mm-hmm. it is to knock off Trump and Trump will be easier for Biden to to beat. Um, you know, I, I do think there is some truth to that. But, you know, I would I would also just add that as we look at what's going on out there and you look at what Trump is saying, the people he seems to fear are the people he's talking about. Ron DeSantis, number one, but also in the last few hours, he's yeah. talking about Chris Christie. So I do think he <laughs> fears either or he's very angry still at Chris Christie for attacking him. All right. But well. you, you watch what he says and the people he talks about are the people I think he fears could, you know, eat into his numbers. Um, so it, Christie seems to be, you know, second to DeSantis on that list. Wow. All right. Well, so I want to hear from you on this. You may not realize but Lisa Camusa Miller hails from New Jersey and knows exactly what Chris Christie and his team are up to here. Is it going to work, Lisa? Boy, I sure hope so. Uh, I have to tell you, I mean, I was I was I, I, you know, look, every candidate, every single candidate, I mean, Donald Trump at the top of that list, are they're all flawed, right? They are all each and every one of them on the Republican side and the Democrat side. So Chris Christie has some hurdles to get over. But um, but the smaller issues, the things that that he has been criticized for do not in any way um, level at the same as as Trump's list of all of the foibles and, and others. Mm-hmm. Chris Christie already has assembled some of the best political operatives that I know that I have worked with that I trust and, and really think are capable if there is any campaign as it's assembling and coming together that could be successful against a Trump. Now, he has, yes, of course, lots of supporters, lots of people that are with him, a great ground game. Mm-hmm. But the people that, that Chris Christie is assembling on the political side today, at least from what I've read and what I've seen, um, they're amongst the best, Joe. And to me, I think that provides the party with with hope. Because, look, I've said to the, I've said this before on your show a dozen times. Yeah. I believe that Chris, it was the brand that Chris Christie opened up when he was the governor that, that opened the Trump. door for Donald Trump. Yeah. What a thought. Great analysis as ever from Lisa Camusa Miller and Jeannie Shanzano. Many thanks to you both. Lisa, come back next week when Chris Christie launches because this is going to be a riot and Mike Pence for that matter. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Great panel and more sound on ahead. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. 
Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We just saw something in Washington that many of us thought we would never see. Really? A public meeting at NASA headquarters about UFOs. A four-hour hearing featuring a panel of experts. There were 16 scientists and other experts, including retired astronaut Scott Kelly, who spent almost a year in space. And as it turns out, had his own experience when he was a fighter pilot. Well, sort of. I remember one time I was flying in the warning areas off of uh, Virginia Beach military operating area there. And my Rio thought, the guy that sits in the back of the Tomcat, was convinced we flew by a UFO. So I didn't see it. We turned around. We went to go look at it. It turns out it was Bart Simpson, a balloon. (laughs) Yes, Bart Simpson. The one, the only, the Bart man. And this was a real public meeting. Questions relayed through NASA's Karen Fox. Thank God they didn't open the phone line. She quickly identified a theme. What is NASA hiding and where are you hiding it? How much has been shared publicly? Has NASA ever cut the live NASA TV feed away from something? Has NASA released all UAP evidence it has ever received? How about this? The conspiracies continued. But NASA's David Spurgle, who chairs the UAP independent study team behind this whole hearing, was there to burst a few balloons. We haven't found life beyond Earth yet, right? I mean, that's be clear about this. We haven't found it yet. But we're looking, and we're looking for it in lots of different ways. You know, is NASA hiding anything about this? No. This is actually what, you know, answering this question is one of the things that NASA as an agency is, <laughs> is excited about. So the answer is no. But you're saying there's a chance. There will be more meetings like this and more information revealed, but until then... We'll just keep images of flying saucers in our heads. Your tax dollars at work, ladies and gentlemen. Answering the questions that we're all begging be asked in the public sphere. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Sound On, the fastest show in politics. And Kaylee Lines is on the way next. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You wanted to seize on a story that is the incredibly long list, the growing list of companies, mainly retailers, facing boycotts from conservative Republicans who are upset about, in many cases on the retail front, LGBTQ Mm -hmm. uh, Pride Month displays. Essentially, Target has been sort of the poster child there. But Kaylee, we saw this begin with Disney and Ron DeSantis. We've seen even a threatened boycott against Chick-fil-A, which is not a darling of Right. if you know anything about this. But they had a DEI statement on on one of their uh, web pages that got people worked up. It's just it's one after the other. Kohl's, Walmart. I could keep going. Yeah, it, it speaks to the culture wars and the pushback against woke 
America woke corporate policies, just the entire woke agenda. And I say all of this, you can't hear it on radio, but I am using air quotes uh, when I say these things. (laughs) But this really is what this what this is about. And it just speaks to the difficulty of a corporation in America having to navigate this kind of political climate when on the one hand, you do have a consumer base, parts of it that are pushing for inclusivity and equality, and they want to see the DNI efforts and the advocacy on some of these social issues. And on the other hand, it's the exact opposite. I mean, it comes back in my realm of covering financial regulation to when we were seeing banks collapse Mm. and there were sitting lawmakers who were blaming it on them being woke, on the d- diversity yes, uh, right. of their boards. This is, you know, a Which wider issue. Not all that diverse. <laughs> a wider, well, the very good point, but uh, clearly something permeating the American political and consumer landscape at the moment. Uh, earlier today uh, on Bloomberg TV, uh, an interesting conversation with the CEO of GLAAD. This is mm-hmm. the LGBTQ media advocacy organization. Its CEO, Sarah Kate Ellis. There is a moment right now that we're in where your values are being called into question. Target has been doing pride for 10 plus years right. at least. Has had apparel lines, many, many different collaborations. Yeah. And this year is no different than the past years. The only difference is, is that there's a small coordinated well, group. That was on Bloomberg Equality uh, just a short time ago, actually, uh, Kaylee. And it's a conversation we wanted to have with Ian Schatzberg, the founder and CEO of General Idea Group. This is a branding agency. And Ian, I welcome you. To Bloomberg Radio, having read uh, your your take on this on the terminal in a great column that we have, you can read a lot more about. I just wonder if you see this as as continuing through the presidential campaign. Is this just the beginning? It seems like you can get anything done when it comes to a boycott on social media. Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yes, I, I mean I do think this is very the beginning, and I think the uh, unfortunate reality of this is that what we're seeing right now at the onset of Pride is really kind of just the the embers of what I think will continue to escalate. So I think, you know, the business community and business leaders are are really going to be, this is an issue that is is not going to go away. I just wonder, though, Ian, if this is literally a no-win situation for some of these companies, because on the one hand, we saw in 2020 in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, companies that weren't outspoken uh, received a lot of criticism. Now it's, you know, companies that are outspoken on some of these social issues are receiving criticism from the other end. How would you be advising navigation of this landscape? Yeah. I mean, I think the term win-win is a kind of complicated way and, and maybe not necessarily uh, the way I would look at it because I think it's really a, you know, ultimately this is really a conversation about values and, and where your values lie. And I think, you know, the, the reality of the, of the business world and of the markets is that they think in terms of numbers and uh, short-term results, but the reality of where your values live, that is, you know, that is perpetual. Like what you stand for and what you believe in, really should be unshakable, I I personally feel, and I would advocate that to business leaders, which is, you know, if you stand up for something and you you declare that you are values-led and purposeful in what you're doing, um, I don't think that you have the ability to to back away from that. So I think Mm -hmm. what I'm sort of witnessing is like, you know, win-win is is perhaps, is is a reframe. It's really like, are are you following through with your actions and your commitments? And, you know, my response would be like, don't make those commitments in the first place if you can't follow through with them. That's, you know, if, if, if you can't win on them uh, because you can't, you can't action them, then, then don't do that. Right. 
I'm I'm taken by the the varied responses that we've seen. Uh, Bud Light yeah. uh, might be a, the the example of how not to do it. Uh, we saw essentially an apolo- a non apology statement from the company that didn't even mention trans or LGBTQ mm-hmm. rights. This following the Dylan Mulvaney uh, endorsement, uh, saying the company was quote in the business of bringing people together over a beer. And guess what? Their sales went down <laughs> even more. Bud Light's now got a, a market share in the U.S. Uh, at eight percent, down from uh, well over ten and a half last year. Uh, Target took a different uh, attitude here. They actually moved some items from its Pride Month collection uh, to the back of the store, in some cases removed them altogether because they said their, their customers were being made to feel unsafe. Their sales continue to sink. Then there's Walmart, which took a very different approach here and said, well, there's nothing to see here. Quote, we have merchandise we sell all year that supports different groups. In this particular case, we haven't changed anything in our assortment. And we'll see how that progresses. The North Face is the last one I'll bring up here. Out for the second year in a row uh, with this advertisement featuring a drag queen that has uh, outraged a number of conservative uh, consumers. Here's what it sounds like. Hi, it's me, Patagonia, a real-life homosexual. And today I'm here with the North Face. see a mustached man wearing rainbow uh, clothing. The Summer of Pride tour begins. It seems almost like they're asking for it. In this case, Ian, what is the right approach? Yeah, I mean, I think the right approach really comes down to, again, being sort of values led in your actions and and standing by your commitments. And I think, you know, I um, I applaud Target and its long term commitments to the LGBTQ community. I think they've done an exceptional job. And I think in this recent instance, they have, uh, you know, they've moved merchandise, but they have pulled back and retrenched. And I think, you know, that's Mm -hmm. a real that that can be seen as I think by consumers as a real slippery slope. You know, if you if you are uh, committed to it and then you waver on it, I think where does that sort of lead? And I think that consent sort of chills through um, people's minds in terms of like, you know, what is this? Where are the convictions of this business? So I think you know Walmart's statement to me is interesting, which is uh, just that they are um, you know committed to lots of they're committed to minorities and and different groups, and and this mm-hmm. is what it is, and it's almost no comment. I think in the instance of Anheuser-Busch, I mean, something that came up yesterday that I was sort of flabbergasted about was that they made a sort of further commitment to the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce. And, um, you know, I think really in that instance, like the the learnings for the business community on that is, again, you know, to, to continually waver is is really not where you want to go. I think you need to lead with conviction and you need to lead with intention. And if you are... Um, you know, claiming your actions, then you follow mm-hmm. through with them. So I, I think there's a lot of learnings on this, but I, I really, you know, I think the North Face is leading with conviction, and I think Anheuser Busch is kind of shedding light on what it means to waver. Well, it it makes me wonder if we're going to start seeing companies not necessarily change their values or abandon the values when in terms of the actual operation, some of their efforts, you know, behind the curtain, but just not being as loud and public about it. I think that's a really great point. I mean, I, I think that is um, definitely something to to be mindful of and to be watchful of, because I do think, you know, the unfortunate reality, I think, of the the landscape at the moment and of uh, what businesses are faced with is that uh, there can be, um, you know, taking a stand means taking a stand. And if you are not committed to doing that, I think you could potentially watch businesses kind of step a little bit back or retrench or be quiet. But I do think in the long run, uh, the businesses that are strong on their convictions 
will win with the consumer. It's really interesting here. What does it tell us, Ian, about the mainstreaming, if if you will, of LGBTQ values and stories? Uh, it, it's it's hard for me to tell if, if it's cresting right now, if it's just kind of breaking out, which is why we're seeing such intense blowback, or if it's it's just social media that makes us think something different's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think we're I think we are witnessing. I think the, you know the LGBTQ community is. Uh, a growing voice in culture and society. And I think if we look at the statistics on generations, there is greater awareness and acceptance of individuals who identify as LGBTQ. And I think that this is um, the beginning of a, of a long journey of louder voices and a big generational shift that's taking place as Gen Z consumers uh, grow up and kind of come into the come into society, come into the workplace, and uh, really are of a different value set where they are, uh, you know, accepting and interested and exploring um, identity in a way that's different from prior generations. Ian, great to have you. I appreciate your insights. Ian Schatzberg is the founder and CEO of General Idea Group, a branding uh, agency, and you can read his comments in the story, U.S. Companies Scramble as Pride Month Collides with Boycotts. It's right there on the terminal. This is something that probably will not be going away, at least as long as this campaign cycle is underway, Kaylee. Well, and frankly, it's also something that investors are going to have to pay close attention to. I That's mean, right. just looking at the target example, an analyst Brutal at Wells stock. Fargo today said this adds uncertainty to a stock that already was facing earnings risk. Mm -hmm. And there is evidence of some financial impact in terms of this boycott. You're seeing data signaling that traffic weakness. So it actually does does matter to the fundamental business. Absolutely. And it is moving shares depending on the company that we're talking about here. Remarkable stuff and a true Bloomberg story, right? The intersection yes. of politics and business, not always for the better in this case. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing. The passion to keep investing. The best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. As we count down to the vote, wasn't I saying that this time yesterday? Yes, I was. <laughs> it's in the Senate this time. It did pass the debt ceiling bill, passed the House late last evening. 
yeas are 314, the nays are 117. The bill is passed. There it is. Motion Without to objection, a motion to reconsider is laid okay. on the table. A majority of Democrats, though, on mm -hmm. that vote count, Kaylee, and uh, Speaker McCarthy was asked today if he was concerned about that. He made it very clear that he thought it was a win for Republicans. There were questions about whether he could get 150. I believe he brought in 149. So One pretty shy. close to the way things actually seemed mm -hmm. uh, like they were going to play out. The question is, will they play out predictably in the Senate tonight or likely tomorrow? Yeah, and that's what we're waiting to find out if we will get final passage of this bill mm -hmm. in both chambers as both sides you know, are going to have to vote for it, A, but are claiming victory as well, B. That's right. Uh, I'm glad to say that we're joined by Mitch Landrew. I didn't expect Mitch Landrew to be out in front of this, but anytime we can spend time uh, with the senior <laughs> advisor to the president and the infrastructure czar, we pick up the phone. Uh, it's great to have you, sir. Welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. I hear you That's laughing there, and you always back. bring an interesting angle on these things. I just, what do you think of the argument here uh, that somebody got rolled? If you ask the Freedom <laughs> Caucus, they say Kevin McCarthy got rolled. If you ask progressive Democrats, they say, ah, the president, he gave up too much. What's your view on what appears to be a genuine compromise? Well, the president's view is the American people won. You know, the, the president made pretty clear to Congress that it had to meet its basic and fundamental constitutional responsibility to prevent a first ever default. Remember, we raised the debt ceiling without consequence 78 times since 1960. So that's why the president was forceful in laying out the economic stakes of a default you know, which could have caused a recession and millions of job loss, a devastated retirement account. So last night, uh, in a really strong bipartisan way at the president's request, um, the House took a critical first step towards preventing that default. And now it's over in the Senate. Uh, hopefully it'll get it done so we can get back to the regular order business and continue the incredible economic growth that the president's produced in the last 18 months, 12.7 million jobs, 800,000 manufacturing jobs, lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. The market responded to it really, really well. So hopefully we'll be on go. Um, the Senate has their crack at it, and hopefully they'll get to it sooner rather than later, and we can get back to work uh, and finish the job. Well, but talking, Mitch, about the economic impact of all of this and some of the specific provisions within it, and I ask you this as the former lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana, so I would imagine you are very familiar with this statistic, but Louisiana has one of the highest SNAP participation rates in the country. It was nearly 20% uh, as of November, I think 900,000 almost participants. Did the administration agree to a deal that is going to end up hurting the people who benefit from that program? Well, first of all, remember, this was a negotiation. Not everybody's going to win. There are always going to be compromises, and um, there are always challenges. You know, the first thing to remember is that the first thing the Republicans wanted to protect were the tax cuts for the wealthy. Uh, and, of course, they always, you know, go after the poor. But the president um, and our team did a great job of pushing back very, very hard on that. We protected Social Security. We protected Medicare. We protected Medicaid. Um, we minimized dramatically the impact that they wanted to have on SNAP that basically carved out uh, the most vulnerable populations and only relented on the part that we had to relating to able-bodied people uh, mm -hmm. that were older. And I think at the end of the day, what we're going to find that is actually more people are eligible for SNAP um, rather than less. So it wasn't a great um, part of, of the bill, but it's like anything else. You know, we're trying to negotiate the responsible folks are showing up. It's a, uh, it's a compromise. Well, that's the analysis from the CBO uh, and, I, and when you put your mayor cap back on, you go down to New Orleans to tell everybody about what's inside this deal. What is the story that you're expanding eligibility for SNAP or that it's going to become a little bit more difficult to get these benefits? 
Well, it's kind of both. But when you look at the overall package, you know, with the package that the president put together with the bipartisan infrastructure law and the CHIPS Act and, and this Invest in America agenda, he's created 12.7 million jobs and he's lifted people out of poverty and has an unemployment rate lower than what we've had in the last 50 years. So notwithstanding this, what I would call a slight contraction, um, the overall, this overall agreement um, is, is, is much, much, much better than, of course, what the Republicans who control Congress wanted to do, which would have resulted in a 22% cut uh, across the board. So from that perspective, we're in a much, much better position. The president fought hard for it. Um, and, you know, we'll continue to do the work that needs to be done. Obviously, in the near term, it would be a better economic position, assuming that this deal means the U.S. is going to avoid defaulting on its debt for the first time. But on the longer term view, the fiscal trajectory of the United States, does it really do much to address that at all? Well, you know, it's one of the (laughs) it's a great question to ask, because, you know, when the Republicans uh, on the far right side of the House started, they started talking about deficit reduction. But the first thing that they rejected was was uh, an effort to peel back the tax cuts for the wealthiest one percent that would have done the most to reduce the deficit and so is it really about that the president as you know um has put forward uh plans that has already reduced the budget the deficit by 1.3 trillion dollars another 1.7 put forward and there was more deficit reduction uh in our side so listen the fiscal health of the country is really really important one of the ways you fix that is you grow the economy and of course the president's record um, has bring in the receipts. 12.7 million jobs, lowest unemployment rate, wages are up. Inflation is still high, but it's heading in the right direction. That's the way you bring down the deficit. And, and you also do it by making sure that everybody pays their fair share. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that the, the, uh, the, the president has been pushing on really hard, but it was one of the things that was rejected very early. So we live to fight another day on that issue. I know you have to run here in a second, Mr. Mayor, but forgive me if I call you Mr. Mayor. I want to ask you just yep. quickly about the impact on the infrastructure bill and its implementation. Does this budget, as you see it moving through Congress, have any impact on shovels going into the grounds in the year ahead? Well, listen, not only that, but again, they didn't touch Social Security. They didn't touch Medicare. They didn't touch Medicaid. They didn't impact or touch the bipartisan infrastructure law, the CHIPS Act, or the Inflation Reduction Act. So the president's all of his core principles – all of his core programs are actually intact and actually moving forward. So as the president says to me every day, hurry the hell up, get it done. We're continuing to work at fast pace. We have 32,000 projects that have been funded in 4,500 communities uh, across all 50 states and all territories. So we're blowing and going, um, and we can't wait to come to a community near you. <laughs> we're going to meet you there one of these days. We talked about that, preferably at Galatoire's, but we'll have that conversation again on another day. The former mayor of New Orleans, he's now the infrastructure czar at the White House and senior advisor to the president, Mitch Landrum. Many thanks here for being with us here on Bloomberg Radio. Always an interesting view. Yeah. As he's, you know, he's not exactly a Washington guy, and he just has a different approach and a different tone when he starts talking about these issues. Well, because we talk so much here when we're speaking with policy wonks and yeah. talking about just legislative text and big round numbers, and you have to talk about the real impact, ultimately, how it how it impacts the American people who are going to feel the consequences of whatever legislation uh, comes through. So whether that is through SNAP benefits Mm -hmm. or infrastructure spending, energy, uh, we have to consider all of that. Yeah, that's for sure. By the way, I was mentioning uh, Speaker McCarthy being asked about, you know, whether this is a win or a loss, Mm -hmm. knowing that it took a majority of Democrats and it wasn't, you know, a blowout here. It took a lot of Republicans too, almost a majority of the 
uh, of the well, almost the 150 that he mm-hmm. promised. It was a majority of the majority. Yeah. Here's the way he answered that question, though, uh, with regard to framing this as to who got what. Okay, so let's see. Deeper spending cuts. Non-defense spending, you take vets out, is lower than it was in 2022. What we just proved was Democrats were here and they spent $6 trillion. They brought us inflation, everything else. They said only thing they would do is just raise the debt limit. Well, now they voted for work requirements. Now they just voted to put PAYGO on, their pres- on all of our president, that he can't, he can't go create a new regulation or others without cutting before that. Realizing he's answering a question by asking more questions, but you get right. a sense where his head is on this. Yeah. And I mean, it's been pretty consistent all the way through, right, that everybody was going to talk about how they were winning. And that's what it takes to get it through your caucus as well. And of course, he's pushing back against members of his own party Mm -hmm. who are saying, as you were mentioning earlier, Mm -hmm. that he got rolled, that McCarthy (laughs) came out at the losing end uh, of this. Obviously, you know, he is doing his best to silence those particular members in the House. Uh, Yes. Uh, (laughs) You know, look, there's a lot there. Obviously, but I, I do wonder if he and Chip Roy had a good hug when they left the house for the week. <laughs> do you think? Maybe. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. With uh, a question at this point on timing more than result, more than outcome in the Senate, Kaylee, there was talk at one point of a vote on the debt ceiling bill happening Midday today, mm-hmm. it's looking more like maybe midday tomorrow. Because of amendments, right, Joe? Yeah. The idea is this is the U.S. Senate we are talking about. And any one senator, if they want to force a vote on the amendment, has sure. the, the potential to drag this out procedurally uh, for a longer period. And we know there's been a lot of amendments put forward. I would imagine that right now they are working to whittle those that number of amendments down. Got it. So this is a great opportunity 
to spend time with Senator Mike Braun, the Republican from Indiana, is preparing uh, to vote on this. And he's, by the way, got his own amendment. Senator, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. Are, are you a no vote on this bill? I am a no, yeah, I am a no vote on the bill because uh, I came from the world of running something for 37 years prior to becoming a senator. And only here uh, are the dynamics in place to where you don't have to do budgets. Uh, that out, went out the window nearly 20 years ago. you got to go back into the Clinton administration where they right. did some and actually had a balanced budget. Uh, probably since the year 2000, um, I think it started with the Bush administration. We put a couple wars on a credit card and did some tax cuts. They generally pay for themselves after two, three, four years. The Democrats won't acknowledge that. I think the Trump tax cuts were as well, but you flush a little, uh, or you take uh, revenues away from the Treasury, but they build because of the economic growth associated with it, somewhere between 2 and 3%. Higher rates, generally you're in that 1% to 1.5% economic growth rate, but the stats prove it over 50 years. We can't generate, regardless of the tax rate, more than about 18% of our GDP. So a lot of this is just there with raw data. But starting then is when we lost, I think, fiscal responsibility. And it's been an equal uh, opportunity enterprise ever since on both sides of the aisle. And that's what's got us to, I got here four and a half years ago, you're 18 trillion in debt. Mm-hmm. Now we're 31 trillion. And do simple math. Uh, mm-hmm. I ask a bunch of reporters what 1% of 30 trillion uh, was here about three, four months ago. It's so abstract, so many zeros. Uh, they couldn't come up with it. They said 300 million. It was, of course, 300 billion. And then said, well, let's take four to 5% interest rates going up. That gets priced into our debt. None of that has been felt yet. So this mm-hmm. is just the beginning of future agony until we get some discipline and common sense and guardrails, which we do not have currently. Mm-hmm. Doing some Bloomberg math in real time there, Senator. <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Joe and I were talking about all of the different amendments that have been put forward that do have the potential to drag out this process. And I understand you've introduced one as well, the no default amendment. So talk to us about what that is trying to accomplish when many of your colleagues have said that you can't amend this because it sends it back to the House, then we risk defaulting. Well, that and that is true, because whenever you're getting an amendment on something like this, it's going to be the message only. You'd have to then, maybe if it gets a good support, try to reintroduce it in as legislation, because you're right, uh, this is not, none of these get teed up unless they've already whipped the vote, knowing that they're going to go down. That's a little inside baseball, but that's the way it wow. works. So, uh then this is why people love washington senator well i mean that's the way it works i i'm just lucky that i got here at a time after i spent uh, you know 37 years as a ceo and cfo it was such a little business for most of that time but it did turn into a national company and you got competition to boot you got to earn your revenues mm-hmm. state governments uh, most of them have balanced budget budget amendments or statutes it's the only place where this you can get by with it. And it's going to catch up for some of the reasons we talked about earlier. What this would do on the amendment uh, would be something that sh- maybe should work if we ever want to put discipline into the process, not get up to the brink, 
and then have every Democrat who's generally unapologetic about wanting more government. It's now up to 25% of our GDP. It was only 20 for most of the history of our country recently, unless you were in a war. Then it always got put back down into that. And then remember, we only generate 17 to 18% as revenue. Yeah. This would say if you hit the X state, and once you cross that threshold, when you have an X date assigned, then if you don't get something done in 30 days, you have a 1% cut defense and domestic discretionary spending. Number one is an incentive not to get there. Number two, that's kind of what we're going to have to start doing sooner or later if we ever quit spending you know, uh, more than we take in, which has not happened since a couple Clinton years back mm-hmm. in the late 90s. You expect to get a vote on your amendment? I think I'm going to get one. I think okay. uh, what you were talking about, there are several others. I think it will get whittled down. I'm not so sure. We'll, uh, we'll probably go into late tonight, early tomorrow. Uh, I was supposed to do a floor speech on this uh, half an hour ago, and that's typical because they're still working out the details of who all is going to get an amendment vote. Well, of course, you have plenty of colleagues, as we've been talking about, pushing for them as well, including Senator Lindsey Graham, who was speaking with Bloomberg earlier today, saying he was willing to drag this thing out till Tuesday, potentially after the X date, if his uh, concerns around Ukraine supplemental aid and defense aren't met. And I'm not sure if he's doing that uh, by wanting an amendment himself. I understand that he wants a vote on an amendment. Um, he could say, well... Even if I have a vote and I, it doesn't uh, get amended, he could take it out to Monday or Tuesday. Then everybody could theoretically go home and come back. We'll find those logistics out soon. But again, uh, Lindsay comes from that uh, side of our party uh, that would be fiscal conservatives until it comes to defense. He and generally 10 to 15 other Republicans, they would be neoconservatives, uh, because they're the ones that generally make the deal with all the Democrats to come up with this now $2 trillion deficit level that we run and would have been part of all of it. That's the unholy alliance here that's got to change. And you're not a fiscal conservative if you want it all to come out of the other side of the aisle's you know, stuff. True. Until you're willing to hold everything accountable it's never going to work. You're going to be putting more debt on future generations. So you're thinking a vote maybe midday tomorrow, Senator, if I'm reading you right, and, and I'm guessing you would not favor waiting until next Tuesday. No, I think that um, it depends. If any one senator can tank the system, or in other words, get rid of the time agreement, yeah. that would have to compress the time. And that, I think, would, if you took... If you had no compression and you just let the clock run, that's a vote next Monday or Tuesday. I'm still hopeful that that won't happen. Uh, Lindsey's not going to get his way either. Um, and uh, I think that he'd be doing what oftentimes he and others would complain about. I don't want to delay the system. I want a handful of kind of relevant uh, amendments. Uh, it will take a little bargaining. It should have been done by now, but... I have no idea when that will conclude, and that will delay the process. Once it starts, I think it should go pretty quickly. 
What do you think the total vote tally is going to end up looking like? Obviously, you're in the no column, but how many of your Republican colleagues in the Senate do you think are going to be a yes? Well, when it's on something that's going to pass anyway, uh, to where it's not super critical, if it's something where you're uh, going to be the deciding vote, a lot of time that's different. Then you may uh, sacrifice even more of your so-called fiscal integrity for it. Uh, I think on these kinds of votes in the past, you're generally going to have 15 to 25 that will vote fiscally conservative. Uh, in this case, the neocons, the ones that put defense at a sacrosanct level, uh, they are going to probably vote for it, um, even though Lindsay is even more concerned than uh, the rest of them might be. Um, I think it'll be very similar to other bills I've seen. When it comes to where you're really making a statement, only three to five of us will vote uh, for the fiscal kind of aspect of things when there's not a real honest pay-for. And honest pay-fors are uh, politically almost impossible. That'd be raising fees or taxes. No one wants to do that. And then the other way you can honestly pay for something is offsetting spending in some other already authorized area. And uh, many times that doesn't happen either. That's when you default to borrowing money. I was reading your tweet, uh, Senator, and, and your take on this is making clear that you're going to vote no. You wrote, there's more drama here than usual, but sadly the play is going to end the same way. The big spenders in both parties getting together to increase the size of the federal government. And so it brings me back to the question about why do we have the debt ceiling anyway? Because the entire argument was that it forces people, it trains their attention on the budget, it brings an inflection point, it forces a negotiation. Otherwise, we would just be spending like drunken sailors forever, even though we haven't had regular order, to your point, in the better part of a generation here. I guess I wonder where your stand is on that. If the debt ceiling isn't prompting a better fiscal behavior, why not get rid of it or align it with the fiscal year so we're not going through this exercise all the time? Well, a couple reasons. Uh, if you didn't have it, period, it'd even be worse. And then when you use the metaphor of a drunken sailor, remember that sailor is spending a paycheck he or she is not borrowing the money. That's the difference. And that's the thing that scares me most. Uh, we're not, uh, however you spend uh, your paycheck, I think if you do it responsibly, and we've turned into a country of uh, consumers and spenders, uh, the greatest generation, and the way you're successful in the long run mm. is you get used to investing and saving. We've gotten so far away from that And again, that's been on display through our federal government since uh, the Bush administration, and both sides of the aisle have been guilty. But, Senator, if we're talking about the paycheck here, obviously the paycheck the government gets is taxes, right? So why were revenue raises off the table? So that goes back to what I said earlier. When you look at uh, raising revenues in our system, uh, you put a wet blanket on the business, business investment side of our GDP. It's made up of business investment. It's made up of consumer spending, net exports or imports. We've been in a deficit there for a long time. And then government spending, which is just transferring money from the private sector to the government. And we can't generate, uh, because when you've had taxes back when they were 60 70%, uh, go back to the Reagan years, you then 
have lower economic activity. And we generate in our current system, the way it's structured, on the average over 50 years, about 18% of our GDP. So if you raise taxes, you'll flush money into the Treasury for the next year or two, then economic growth goes down, and you start to slide where you were before, and it's all there. Look at the data. That's what most people don't understand. But, Senator, looking at the economic analysis from Wall Street economists, for example, that came out when McCarthy's bill was passed, there would be an economic growth drag as well from steep spending cuts. So, in theory, if we're going to get our fiscal health in order, isn't growth going to take a hit either way? Why not look at both ends? I think the quality of your GDP is going to be better if it gets put through consumer spending outside of government because resources are allocated through the markets. And the place that we're really suffering as a country would be private business investment. When you put more there, you sacrifice a little in the present, but your future is much rosier. That goes back to, do we want to be a nation of consumers and spenders? If we're going to consume, do it through the private sector, don't do it through government. It gets hit with a 20, 30, maybe 35% administrative fee that goes along with it. It's not the same quality of GDP as it would be otherwise. Senator, you've been super generous with your time. We only have a minute left. I just have to ask, considering your aversion to Speaker McCarthy's work here and I guess President Biden's work, do you believe that Kevin McCarthy should be Speaker? Does he deserve to hold the gavel? I think Kevin did the probably the best he could. It was a little bit, I kind of think, deceiving, because I think many that enabled him to become speaker wanted him to hold closer to the bill that passed out of the House. And here, you look at any of the ledger across any of the uh, folks that are talking about this, uh, this kind of stacks up as a net win for the Democrats. Um, But more than anything, Uh, There are only a few of us that understand the macroeconomics, Mm. uh, the microeconomics, and have run a business, taken finance 101. This just is a bad business plan in general that repeats more of the same, has government, and even a higher percentage. Senator, thank you. Many thanks for spending time with us. Mike Braun, this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.